This morning's reading is from Matthew 6, 19 through 24, and 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to, to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Church. <clears throat> uh, I want to ask for your grace a little bit here. I'm coming off of a migraine and I'm exhausted. And so uh, I have been bumbling my words all morning long. And so when I do so today, please just give me a moment to try to collect my thoughts and, and we'll keep rolling. Uh, yeah, but before we dive in, please join me in prayer. Dear Father, <clears throat> ask for your strength this morning and ask for your words. May your Holy Spirit be here and present and working in our hearts and our minds as you reveal your words to us. Lord, if I say anything that is not from you, may it be forgotten and dismissed. And may through all of this you be glorified. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. About six years ago, Cadillac came out with a commercial for its 2014 ELR. And it started with a camera shot of an upper middle class dad in a polo shirt and khaki pants, and you're looking out over his shoulder, and he's in his backyard, and he's looking at his pool and his perfectly manicured lawn and some nice shrubbery in the background and this very expensive house off to the left here. And he asks a question, he says, what do we work so hard for? For what? For this? For stuff? 
other countries, they work. They stroll home. They stop by the cafe. They take August off. Off. Why aren't you like that? Why aren't we like that? And it's interesting because at this point you're thinking, this is a pretty profound commercial. Why do we work so hard? And especially because it's a commercial asking why we would work so hard and is it actually for stuff? Because obviously it's a commercial. It's selling us stuff. So I'm, I'm really interested what the answer is going to be here. And so he goes on and, and he, and he kind of answers the question in a roundabout way. And he talks about, well, we work so hard because... Um, Take the examples of, of Bill Gates and Muhammad Ali and Les Paul, and, and we went up to the moon first. None of the other countries have done that. And as he kind of winds his way through the commercial, eventually he gets back to a Cadillac 2014 ELR. And he says, I digress. It's pretty simple. You work hard, you create your own luck, and you've got to believe that anything is possible. As for all the stuff, that's the upside of only taking two weeks off in August. And my hope for this commercial kind of fell when I first saw this. Because that message is just a little distasteful. I don't know of anyone who would complain about having the entire month of August off. I wouldn't. And as was predictable, this commercial received quite a bit of backlash from the media and on social media. And they talked about how this portrayal of the American dream, or you just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and, and you get all of this stuff, is out of touch. Out of touch with reality and, and out of touch with pretty much everyone, except for maybe the elite, the very wealthy in America. Yet, Michael Norton, he's a Harvard business professor who specializes in researching the relationship between satisfaction Happiness and wealth concludes that across the spectrum of incomes, people use two questions to determine their level of satisfaction. Number one, am I doing better than I was before? Number two, am I doing better than the person beside me? And that feels so primitive, so ugly. Sure, I could see wanting to improve, but needing to be better than the person beside me in order to be satisfied with myself? That doesn't sound like something I want or something I think about myself. And yet, yeah, the shoe does fit. Because when I consider the satisfaction with my own physical appearance and with my own living situation, with my own level of knowledge, my comparisons come from, am I better than what I used to be? And to a large extent, how do I compare to the person next to me? Now, perhaps even more indicative of, of how true these two questions are to our culture was um, the commercial that Ford made in rebuttal to that Cadillac commercial. This commercial starts off in the same way, very much a parody. You're looking out over the shoulder of a woman now, and you're looking at a dirt pile. I think it's supposed to be a garden of sorts or maybe a composting pile. And as you go through the commercial, and she's saying much of the same lines tweaked a little bit, instead of pools and fancy houses, you see community gardens and local restaurants with environmentally friendly practices. And instead of talking about getting rich, we hear about farmer's markets and using manure from the local zoo. And yet in the end, the message doesn't change. Just the measure by which satisfaction is determined. 
Whereas the Cadillac commercial, we, we worked hard to be better than all the other countries and to get more stuff. In Fords, we work hard to make a better, better, the world a better place and do it through environmentally friendly stuff, which, by the way, we're doing better than our neighbors and better than that Cadillac guy for sure. But both commercials end with a brand new car. In both examples, the question is, am I doing better than I was before? And am I doing better than the person beside me are the determining factors of satisfaction. The message whether is that whether we're an upper-class middle or upper-middle-class suburban family or a self-sufficient urban entrepreneur is that contentment is a destination that we'll never reach. And so we must be continually comparing and consuming to get there. The society that Jesus lived in and was preaching to in, in, out of this Matthew passage was, had a lot of similar themes. They had life that was filled with, with symbols of status. They had, they had rulers that built entire cities and named them after emperors just to gain some favor. They had religious hierarchies. They had ethnic class systems. And to them, Jesus asked the same question that started that 2014 Cadillac commercial. Why do we work so hard? For what? For the sake of comparison? And in response, and in his teaching moment, he says this. If you look with me in chapter 6 of Matthew, starting in verse 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Because whether our treasure consists of nice stuff with, that's backyard pools or in nice houses and, and, and beautiful $75,000 cars, or our treasures cons- are consisted of environmentally friendly restaurants and, and reputations and go- local gardens, none of this stuff is permanent here on earth whether by natural forces or by acts of violence. We talk about seeing these, these moths and rust or the thieves that break in and steal. Everything, every earthly possession that we have can and will be destroyed and taken away. Example number one, our lives. Whether by natural forces or whether by some act of violence that we can't control, our lives are going to end. They will not stay. At least they won't stay here on earth. And even during our lifetime, even while we are living, we can lose jobs and reputation and relationships and, and possessions because as we've seen time and time and time again over the past 10 years, it only takes one social media lynch mob and your life is over. But if we're trading in all of these possessions on earth for, for heavenly possessions, that just seems to continue the cycle though. And that's a problem. Because this this endless cycle of searching for satisfaction continues, only now the question is, instead of trying to be better than my neighbors here on earth, I'm trying to build up the eternal stuff, right? So that when I get to heaven, I can compare myself to my neighbor, whoever he might be, and be like, I got a better mansion and a bigger crown. And the comparison continues, or so it seems. And then Jesus hits us with verse 21, which we talked about in our children's sermon today. For where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. The end goal is not about stuff, whether on earth or in heaven. The end goal is the preservation of our hearts. If our hearts desire the stuff and the treasure here on earth, then our hearts will perish along with the stuff and the treasure here on earth. But if our hearts are desiring the treasures of heaven, then it will live forever beyond the reach of decay and destruction. What are these treasures? Because I think as we very well heard here in our children's sermon, the treasures of heaven aren't things. We talk about mansions and we talk about crowns in the Bible, but those aren't the things that we're striving for. Instead, well, the main biggest treasure that we see and the biggest treasure that we get to experience in heaven is the glory of God. That overwhelming, incredible presence of the one who created the entire universe. We get to bask in his presence and enjoy him forever. And in addition to that, look at the the other treasures of heaven, the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Depending on what the desires of our hearts are, there also will be our goal and our measure of contentment. If we desire stuff, Stuff is going to be the thing that, that, that dictates our contentment. But if we are desiring those treasures in heaven, then the comparison ceases to matter because when we experience those things, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, and the self-control, it's not a measure of, of having more than someone else. That's things that we get to receive and things we get to give. They're not things we can accumulate. They're not things that we can measure. They're things that we experience. So why do we work so hard? Well, Jesus seems to be telling us here that we work so hard because we're working for the desires of our hearts, wherever those desires might be, and that's what we're going to work after. That same Harvard professor, Michael Norton, And his collaborators, they did a study. They asked 2,000 people who had a net worth of at least $1 million, including there were a whole lot of people in this study that had net worths that were far beyond that into the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And they asked them all, how happy are you on a scale of 1 to 10? And then they asked asked them, how much money would you need to get to a 10 on that scale? And all the way up the income wealth spectrum, Norton said, Basically, everyone says they would need two to three times as much to be perfectly happy. Which seems so almost as ridiculous and out of touch as that Cadillac commercial. Because these are people that have, by comparison, the average American will make a million dollars in his entire lifetime. And they have it at one moment. There's almost nothing that they can't afford. And for many of them, it's not a matter of if they can afford them, it's how many things, how much of something they can afford. And so them saying that they need two to three times as much to be content. I know a lot of us play the lottery in the very hopes that we would reach that same levels and thinking that, oh, we would be content if we got there. Apparently not. What I would call this, and as uh, the professor kind of indicates, This is the cycle of wealth. And he gives this example. 
He says, if a family amasses, say, $50 million, but upgrades to a neighborhood where everyone has that much money or more, they feel a whole lot less rich than if they had stuck to their peer comparisons they were making that were only making tens of million dollars a day ago. Hence the ever-shifting goalposts of wealth and satisfaction. By which he's, he's saying this is that as we get better, we think about the comparison with ourselves and where we used to be, and as we progress in our, in our accumulation of wealth and our life status, we tend to also move into neighborhoods or into places that are similar to us in status. The problem is, is once we move into those neighborhoods, once we are around people who have that same level of wealth or even a little bit greater wealth, well, the things we have no longer seem so special. And all of a sudden, that comparison with our neighbors kick in. And we want to be, our measure of satisfaction of, are we doing better than our neighbors, comes back with a no. And so we want more. I saw that moving from Maryland Heights out here to St. Peter's. One, the quality of the air. <laughs> it was noticeably different. The quality of the cars driven. The quality of, of the stores to shop in and the prices in those stores. All increased just from Maryland Heights to St. Peter's. And so you get reset that level of, of what is my benchmark? And all of a sudden you start comparing to the people around you instead of comparing to what are the, what are the treasures in heaven that I should be seeking? Now, we just talked about in the budget class yesterday how one of the cultural myths is that I just need a little bit more money to make things work out, especially when balancing a budget. If I just had a little bit more, I could pay things off. If I just had a little bit more, it wouldn't be such a strain to make all the different payments and juggle all the different things work. The question is to make what work out? To raise our standard of living to be on par with neighbors and friends? What would it look like for each of us to break this cycle of wealth? Or this, some of, you can also hear it as keeping up with the Joneses. What does it look like to put our satisfaction in these treasures of heaven instead of on comparisons on earth? The disclaimer here, when we're talking about this, it's not a sin to produce wealth or to gain wealth by honest means. For God created this world to, with the capacity for wealth creation. Having wealth does not in and of itself mean anything bad or sinful. But this question of how to put our satisfaction instead of in this endless cycle of comparison and cycle of wealth that we just can keep moving up ladders, how do we put our satisfaction in the treasures of heaven? Things that don't need comparison, things that don't merit comparison. And it's a hard question. It requires a lot of changing of the wiring that we've been taught That's exactly what Jesus starts to address in verse 22. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And this seems like it should be its own separate passage. We go from talking about treasures and hearts to now we're talking about eyes and light and darkness. It, it, It just seems like a completely different thing. Jesus was just talking about treasure, and now he's talking about eyes. And yet, it's right here in the middle of this section about treasures. It's not a mistake. Matthew didn't all forget what Jesus was saying and, and, and not t- copy it down the way it was meant to be copied down. And, 
and the editing process didn't just stick it in here because they forgot where else it was supposed to go. Jesus is giving a practical test for his statements before. Because treasures in heaven feels a little vague. Trying to desire in the spiritual practice, trying to desire love and the glory of God and all of these things. These are great. We all can mentally say, I want to serve that. I want to go after that. But it's really hard to pin down. And so Jesus gives us this test of the eye. Because the direction of the eye is a whole lot easier to determine than maybe this spiritual vagueness of, of, of am I content with, with the treasures of heaven? And he says, do we find our eyes consistently looking at things that would increase our earthly treasure or at things that would increase our heavenly treasure? Jesus uses the analogy of light and darkness to show the uncompromising contrast between the two. Either our eyes are looking at light or they're looking at darkness. Because if there's any light present, it's not darkness anymore. And if they're looking at darkness while we think that we're full of light, then our hearts are, that darkness in our hearts is so much greater, or it feels so much greater at least. It's evident by that next verse, in verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Darkness cannot be present when light is present. Even a little light in our eyes will adjust and we'll see the way. So if our eyes are full of darkness, focused on the treasures of earth, we will be serving money. And money is an accommodating master. It doesn't care... It doesn't care if you're serving it and try to serve some other things. It's fine with that. Because it knows that in the end, as we heard in the examples of the mega rich, if money is a master in any sense, it will be the master over anything else. Hence the saying, everyone has a price. So instead, when we break down, when we... When we break from the need for comparison to measure satisfaction, when our heart's desire is the light of heaven's treasure, then our eyes turn to God, and we set our eyes on his glory. And so what happens when our hearts are in heaven, when our hearts are, are aligned such that God is the object of our desire? Back in the 1950s, <clears throat> started the beginning of, of what I like to call mega temples. Every city over about 50,000 people had at least one mega temple, if not several mega temples. And Americans worshipped at them with a passion. We would plan our weeks around them. They would stop in for meetings, for lunches, to get together, to study groups. They would spend entire days worshipping at these mega temples. People came from hundreds of miles around to come worship at the biggest and the best of these mega temples. They had impressive structure. You come in and they had soaring ceilings and beautiful skylights. I'm talking about shopping malls. America's temples to consumerism. Shopping malls hit their peak about 15 years ago. But... Has their demise been because Americas have moved on from that more stuff mentality? Uh, no. No. Instead, we shed all pretense of those malls and, and, and all the good things that we, we said that they brought, like social interactions and relational connections to our communities, and we turn to consumerism in its starkest form, 
Amazon and online shopping. In malls, our hearts were pulled towards this desire for stuff, but our eyes were still deceived, thinking that we were looking at light because there was social interaction, places of employment, community building events. But as our hearts were turned to money, and as money became the master of them and consumerism that came with it, so our eyes darkened to the reality that was in front of us. Amazon and online shopping in general, not bad in and of themselves, but what has happened is that like the shopping malls before it, they've encouraged consumerism at a level that we've never seen before in history. Now the mastery of our money over our consumerism shows itself. Gone is the pretense of a mall. Now it is just blatant buying things and buying things, for the most part, as cheaply as possible and as conveniently as possible. This is just one measure in an easily quantifiable area of what it looks like to think that your heart is full of light. Instead, you're looking at darkness. What does it look like to examine the other desires of our hearts in that way? Jesus isn't forbidding joyful living. He's not forbidding financial planning. He's not forbidding ownership of property or, or preparing retirement accounts. He is forbidding greed and the love of money and selfish luxury. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He provides us with things, and he richly provides them such we can enjoy. We're not, we don't need to go live lives of poverty. That's not what we're being called to, but we also are not, definitely not being called to lives of selfish greed. One of my professors wrote, to be practical is an example of, of what this looks like. When an advertisement directs us to picture yourself behind the wheel of the latest and greatest car or truck or hybrid vehicle, we should not picture ourselves behind the latest and greatest truck or hybrid vehicle. When a magazine directs us to consider a kitchen renovation, we should not begin to plot out every single purchase. Because remember that the Bible says that we should flee temptation. Therefore, we should not stir up by envying our friends' cars or fabrics or vacations. Let us be careful where we set our eyes. Let us be careful with advertisements. They're everywhere. And with visits to our more prosperous friends who are doing better than us. Because it's one thing to come in and admire a beautiful home and enjoy the hospitality that they're able to give, and it's a whole other thing to envy it. One other question that I think is a good measure and, and perhaps the easiest and most applicable right now is when you're making a financial decision. First question for me has always been, can we afford it? Instead, let's ask the question, does this glorify God? And does it make me a better servant? Ask those questions first. I'm not saying that, that can we afford it shouldn't be part of that discussion. It should be. Absolutely, we're called to be good stewards of the things that God has given us. But that shouldn't be the first consideration because that's showing who your master is, who the person you check with first. The thing you check with first. Let this consideration of it, is this glorifying God? Is this making me a good servant? Is this good stewardship? And then whatever other questions are, we determine, we can figure those out, what those would look like before we get to can we afford it. In the same way, parents out there, when your kid is asking you for a toy or he's asking you for to go do something or whatnot, be careful when your response 
an easy response, and I got this response all the time, was, well, we can't afford it. End of discussion. Well, there's nothing we can do unless I went out and got money. We can't afford it. But what is the message you're communicating with it? You're communicating that money rules. Money is the first determining factor in doing these things. What does it look like to use our money in ways that are glorifying to God? Not to always be worrying about, first and foremost, can we afford all of these things? But first and foremost, can we glorify God with these things? For this, we turn to Paul's writings in 2 Corinthians verse 9. If you want to look with me, I'm starting in verses 6 and 7. Paul writes this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. These verses have been misused and abused pretty often in the church um, through what we call the prosperity gospel. We use it to say, sow generously, sow your money generously, give to the church a lot, and God will give you a lot of money back. The words of Luke Skywalker, amazing, because everything in that sentence was wrong. <laughs> Jesus is calling us, when, when Paul is saying to sow so bountifully, to reap bountifully, he's calling us for the very same thing that Jesus was, to store up our treasures in heaven. So bountifully with whatever those treasures may look like, such that the treasures you reap are the treasures that are from heaven. I'm going to keep rolling past that. Then in verse 10, we read that God has given us the seed that we sow and the bread that we eat. So even in this consideration of what can what can we afford even if we get past all of this remembering that the things that we have were given to us given to us by God for and they're given also for this purpose in verse 11 you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God God enriches us to be generous God enriches us because he wants to see us building up those treasures in heaven, going out and sowing those seeds with whatever the treasures look like, money, time, talent, all of the different things that could be in there from presents to to your giftings to, man, there's a lot of treasures that he's given us. And he wants to see us going out and sowing them such that, and being generous with them such that he will enrich us in turn with love, with the glory of his presence, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with self-control, and with thanksgivings that come from it, being able to see other people giving glory to God because of your own generosity. Now, Paul's talking about this in the context of taking an offering to saints. Um, He's going around all the different churches that he's planted, and he's asking for them, and he asked them in advance. He said, budget out. Budget out what you can give. And then when I come, please come, please give it cheerfully because you've budgeted it out. And please give it cheerfully because it's going to saints who are in extreme poverty in Jerusalem and they're experiencing extreme persecution. But not just for the needs of those saints, but also for the thanksgivings that they will give when they receive these offerings that you are giving. And so in answer to that question, why do we work so hard, we get a third, third answer. Because we work for each other. 
in the stewardship of our time and talents and our treasures for the glory of God, we plant seeds that grow into a harvest of hearts residing in heaven, free and out of the reach of decay and destruction. I would say that's, probably, that's a lot of what the work that we're doing here at Christ Church. At least that's what our mission is. That's what we're trying to do. Our satisfaction as a church doesn't come from comparing ourselves to what we have been previously. I've heard about the heydays when the parking lot was filled. It's not what we're comparing ourselves to. Nor are we comparing ourselves to our neighbor churches. There's a lot of big churches around here. But our size has, means nothing in the treasures in, in, in the work of God. How big we are versus how big they are versus any of these other comparisons, they don't matter. Because we know that we're doing the work of God, no matter how small, no matter what we used to be. And so we strive to make that our heart's desire because we show it and we know it through our work for each other and getting to see the thanksgivings to God that come from it. That's the treasures in heaven that we get to store up as a church and as a community. Now let's be frank. Frank in that we're going to talk a little bit about the budget of Christ Church. Now, Christ Church, if you, the budget was sent out to all of you, so I don't think this is news or I'm divulging any secrets or anything, but our budget for an entire year is about 192000 I think that's right, Rich. Thank you. So that works out. If you taking the number of, of family units in this church that are members and are fairly regular attenders, that works out to about $70 per family unit per week. Not per person, per family unit. For some of us, that sounds like a lot. $70 a week is, does not sound affordable. For some of us, $70 a week doesn't sound like much at all. And that's where we get to see the, the beauty of God giving generously to some people and not so much to others. It's a mystery why he does that, but he does. And we get to rejoice in the generosity of the people around us. And so what do we do? What, do, what does Christ do with this budgeted amount? Well, there's a number of things. A number of things that that goes to. Well, one, it goes to this building and the space that we provide here. And there's a number of things that come with it. One, we provide a space for us to come on Sunday mornings to worship, to have a relationship with each other, to experience the presence of God on the first day of the week before we go out and we have to go through the rest of the week. Another thing that it provides is space for things like portals. Portals is a bereavement group for people who have just lost their spouse their partner or spouse, and, and they come and they meet and they have kind of a group counseling session to work through that. It also, we also, This building also provides space for funerals, for weddings, for baby and bridal showers. Um, it comes off, we're averaging, I don't know, what is it, like maybe three, three people a month that'll come in from the community and they just need someone to talk to. It's neither a place to sit down because they don't have another place and they just, they are in dire straits and they need someone to talk to and this is the place they can come do it. And we've got a great location for it. There's a story Jenny was telling me from a few summers back about a man from Texas who called about three, three summers back. He called needing a place to hold his funeral for his sister who had lived in the area. And when we told him that we could do it and it would be a $60 charge to use a facility, he just about started weeping. He couldn't believe that we would let him, even though he's not a member, come in and use our building for a funeral for his sister. In the past, we've hosted a preschool for no charge. And as we, now that we have 
preschool is no longer operating, we have lots of space, and that's one of the beautiful things we get to do with this building. We get to do as a community, we get to dream. We get to dream, what do we want to use this building for? What do we want to, how do we want to serve our community? What things can we bring in here to enrich our community, to, to disciple people, to minister to them? We have a fantastic facility, and we get to use it. The other things that this, that this budget covers is staff. Pays my salary. Also covers insurance. It also supports Renewing Life Church out in Ferguson, our sister church that we're planting. It helps getting them off the ground and, and doing a ministry in an area that vitally needs the work that Terry and his core group are doing. In addition to some of, this, in addition to some of the ministries that we do, from discipling, from children's time, to Bible studies, to small groups, to a, uh, hosting dinners, hosting parties, to, to, to the Remembrance Dinner in, in December. There's so many things that th- that budget for the things of Christ Church does and in the ministries that it does in sowing seeds such that we get to reap the harvest of heavenly treasures. But that's just the stuff in this building. And that's just that, that singular budget. And we'll talk about this. you got envelopes today. Put this down. And in there we have... Commitments to giving. Giving commitment. You'll see two lines. One is commitments to the needs of Christ Church, and that's the thing that I just talked about. The other one is the commitment to the missions of Christ Church. As a church, the missions, the missions, the things that we do in outreach, things going outside of this church wall and spreading those seeds and sowing them across the community, uh, we have a commitment currently of about $750 a month, which translates to about $4 per family unit per week. And the things that this fund, these funds are ministries like uh, the Fields, our, our missionaries out in Colombia, the Hertzlers who are working the tech department for crew around the world, the Sarkowskis who work who are missionaries over in the Czech Republic, as well as Camp Penuel for helping for funding for that. And anything beyond that level, anything beyond that $750 level, then it goes into some of the other ministerial communities and, and ministries that we do, such as the Lynx community, helping out our elementary children, feeding them over the weekends, to our racial reconciliation committee, helping our city talk to each other, to the bridge, ministering out in Newtown, to restore St. Charles, building and, and, and doing projects for the people to beautify our community and to help people who can't. The saints, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Joachim and Anne, Joachim and Anne, there we go, um, as well as the Oasis Food Pantry, which we have a drive going on right now. That's what these this missions go for. That's what that second line is for. And so, as we talk about treasures, building up treasures in heaven, I invite you to consider that, to consider what that means, consider what it looks like for you. In the example that Paul gave the Corinthians, he said, budget this out. Don't do this rashly. And don't feel like you're doing it under compulsion. Do it cheerfully. So do what you can. Do it in response to the gifts that God has given you. But don't make it something that's a burden. Because God loves it when you give to him cheerfully out of what he's given to you. And these are the things, these are the ministries that we've been talking about. These are the things that we're supporting. Um, these are the missions that we get to do. These are the seeds that we get to plant. And we get to watch with joy as they, they, they grow and, and, and harvest. And come back as many thanksgivings and people giving thanksgiving to God. That's what we're here for. Bring people to God and put their, get their hearts put in heaven. In all of this, 
Let me ask that question. What do we work so hard for? One, we work so hard for our heart's desires. That's what drives our passion. And hopefully, when our hearts are in the right place, then we're working for God. Not under the master of money. We're working for a God who, who gives back to us. Who doesn't put us in an endless cycle of comparison and an endless cycle of, of not being satisfied. And lastly, when we're working for God and we're doing the work that he does, that work goes out and it works for each other. Sow the seeds such that we get to see the change in the lives of, of each other and in relationship with us as well as in the thanksgivings that are given to God in return. Because in all of this, in all of the giving that we are doing, in all the treasures that we're stewarding, stewarding, we remember first and foremost that God gave us all of our treasures. To some he gave more than others, but that's not the cause for greed, that's not the cause for envy, but the cause to rejoice Rejoice that he has blessed our neighbors. Rejoice that we get to see the heavenly treasures that they get to sow. And we benefit from it because we're in relationship with them as well. And we know because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus that our hearts reside in heaven. And we celebrate that we get to participate in the work that the Holy Spirit does in bringing other hearts up there as well. Away from decay. Away from destruction away from the earthly experiences that would take away and never give back. Please pray with me. Dear Father, first of all, help us with our desires of our hearts. We live in a culture that loves stuff, and we love stuff too. Lord, fill our eyes with light so our hearts may be filled with light as well. And let us work after you and let us enjoy and, and, and receive the blessings that you give us as well as the blessings that you give to the people around us. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus.